Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. An interesting story has come out and it's put together by a non-profit group called Movement Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. And this group is finding out that not all areas are equal in the Lower Mainland when it comes to the number of people using transit or depending upon transit. And some of this you might expect, but there are some surprises. And one of the surprises for me, if I was to guess as a guy growing up in the burbs, I would say, yeah, those of us who lived in the burbs probably wanted it the most, but had kind of the worst service. And those downtown Vancouver or the closer to the downtown core, they probably had the best of the transit service. Well, is that the case? Kind of, but not necessarily so. Let's bring in Dennis Agar, and he's the executive director of Movement Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm looking through your list of the top 10 areas and... uh, Yeah, Vancouver kind of stands out to me, but when you're talking Metro Vancouver and the area served, it's not necessarily downtown. What did you find out here? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, The, you know, if we had to pin it to one theme, it's that the areas with the highest transit usage follow the expo line, but there are a lot of exceptions like Vancouver, Kensington. Um, You know, we broke it down by electoral districts to make sure it was relevant to MLAs. And so Vancouver Kensington, uh, where the MLA is Mabel Elmore, she was a bus driver at one point, actually. Vancouver Kensington has no SkyTrain stations and it's number three on our list. So this is kind of the heart of Vancouver, East Vancouver, like around 49th, 41st, King Edward. And um, and they're so dependent on transit there and have no SkyTrain service at all. In fact, a lot of these areas are in East Vancouver and Burnaby. Yeah. And I'm looking at the top 10 list, by the way, number one, two, and three are number one, Vancouver Renfrew, number two, Vancouver Langara, and as you mentioned, number three, Vancouver Kensington. But I'm looking at also uh, in the top five, there is Burnaby South Metro Town and Surrey City Centre. If I go through the entire top 10 And correct me if I'm wrong here, Dennis, but a lot of these areas are where students live. I think students definitely play a big role. And I think what we've also been seeing are um, people that work jobs that you can't do remotely, uh, right? Like people that work in a factory or a warehouse or, uh, you know, they they make things. Um, People that, these are the people that really rely on the system. Um, We've seen tremendous growth in Surrey. Uh, even since these numbers were taken, these are from May 2021. So this was the heart of the pandemic. So I think these numbers have gotten a lot bigger. And I think what we'll see when the next census comes out in 2026 is is that the numbers in Surrey are just really shocking. 
Why do you think that is? I think Surrey's affordable. I think Surrey's the place where, you know, when you when you are working in, in those kinds of roles and when you're first coming to Metro Vancouver, Surrey is, is probably um, one of the cheapest places to land um, still has decent transit service. And by decent, I mean, it exists. <laughs> but what we hear from our riders in Surrey is that um, because of the growth in, in transit ridership, a lot of people end up getting left behind by the bus, which means they have to build more time into their commute, which just saps away time from them to spend with family. Now, those of us who live in uh, eastern areas of Surrey, Uh, will rightly point out that quite often the buses are full by the time that uh, you even have a chance to see them. Uh, I'm thinking like the 502 that goes down Fraser Highway, which eventually will be the route for, guess what, SkyTrain, much needed. But, uh, (laughs) you you know, it's, it's kind of like one of those things, at least in my view, where if you live in the burbs, you really need transit because uh, you want to cut down on the use of a car or perhaps you don't have a car to get downtown and uh, transit use would be great. But also, it is the most difficult to actually use uh, in terms of length of waits, crowding on buses or buses that simply only exist along the major routes. I mean, yeah, and I think that might be why when we look at this list and, you know, you think of the the electoral districts like Vancouver West End, Vancouver Yaletown, those two aren't in the top. And because they have options like walking, cycling, they have a lot of alternatives. Um, but there's kind of, and, and obviously there are areas like, you know, Maple Ridge and Abbotsford that that have, you know, very, very little transit usage. And that those are places where cars are extraordinarily competitive just because of the way those cities were designed. But there's a zone in the middle. East Vancouver, Burnaby, New West, Surrey, as we mentioned. And that's a zone where transit, um, so many people depend on transit because it's it's what they can afford. Uh, and, you know, it's it's really hard to bike and walk places because distances are so long. And these are the areas where we're seeing so much overcrowding, people being left behind. And ultimately, that's the message we want to go to MLAs is to please put money in the budget to address the, the overcrowding that prevents people from getting the opportunities. I want to get to the policymakers in a moment because that's the way you broke this down was mm-hmm. by constituency. And there's good thinking behind that, mm-hmm. I believe. But, uh, you know, I also grew up in South Delta and I remember the 601 only coming oh. once every half hour. And uh, it was not the best of service. It was the only service for a while when I grew up to get downtown. Mm. Um, So people that grew up in Tawasson or Ladner or equivalent places that were far out from the downtown core kind of came to expect that transit was not going to be there for you and gave up. And because they gave up and because their policy Mm. leaders didn't really uh, think of it as much of an issue... It became a chicken and egg thing. Are you seeing that? Oh, that definitely happens. And what we've seen, too, is that um, in East Vancouver, a lot of the historic kind of straight streetcar routes like Fraser, Victoria, Maine, um, service has actually been cut on those routes in the last few years. And the reason for that is that TransLink doesn't have money for new service. And so when they have new people come online, then they have to scramble. And what they've ended up doing is shifted service from those East Vancouver ridings that have the most ridership to Surrey, where merging. 
and and growing really quickly. And it's it's a new thing down there. So right, the frequency in Surrey is a lot greater than it used to be. And the frequency in East Vancouver is lower than it used to be. And I think what we're seeing, that's where I live, East Vancouver, and, and among people I know, they're thinking less and less about the bus because the frequencies are going down. And what you end up is something in the transit industry that we call a death spiral, where less frequency leads to less demand, which then politicians can say, oh, there's less frequency, there's less people riding, then we can cut service. Yeah. And then it just goes down and down and down. Yeah, Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. We're talking about transit users and where they live in Metro Vancouver. And our de- our guest is Dennis Agar, Executive Director of Movement Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. And that group has put together a list of the top 10 areas by electoral districts where there are transit users. Number one, Vancouver Renfrew. Adrian Dix is riding 34%. Number two is Vancouver Langara. And number three, Vancouver, Kensington. The list of the top 10 rounds out with Burnaby and some East Vancouver areas and New Westminster, Coquitlam, and even Surrey Center. Uh, Dennis, before we get to the phone calls, uh, just quickly, why did you put this together? What do you need politicians and policymakers to know? We just wanted to remind MLAs of how important transit is to their constituents. And that's going to be our message going forward. Um, you know, that's the whole point of this organization is to really connect riders and their concerns with MLS. Okay, well, let's go right to one of the areas that uh, is in the top 10, New Westminster. Nancy, Nancy, do you take transit? Do you use transit? Is it uh, meeting your needs? Uh, I used to a lot more than I do now because I'm retired now. But um, we actually moved into the house we are living in now 30 years ago because it's located just two and a half blocks from the 22nd Street SkyTrain station. Used to live between Edmonds and um, uh, Royal Oak, but while both stations were walkable on a nice summer day, I was working shift work, and there was no way I was going to walk home at midnight in the dark, especially since I li- have lived with a visual impairment all my life. So moving in here was absolutely, um, I mean, I'm right near transit, I'm right near um, buses, I can get almost anywhere on my own. And uh, it was the reason this when this house came available and we fell in love with the house, that was definitely one of the, the top reasons for buying it. Interesting, Nancy. And uh, when you take a look at an area like New Westminster, it is rapidly growing. And I think a good reason or one of the big uh, factors there is its accessibility to solid transit lots of transit routes uh and it's not just skytrain is nancy making a good point she's a senior but whether you're a senior or a student or somewhere in between in the workforce where you live is going to be transit dependent uh, isn't it dennis totally totally and we all have different abilities to choose where we live you know some of us are you know still living with parents some of us um, you know, kind of have the run of the region to pick. And, and so that choice is really important. Um, and my hope is that as we develop this region, that we develop more housing next to SkyTrain and that we have more SkyTrain stations to develop next to. And so the, the sum total of all that is that we just have a whole bunch of more people living next to SkyTrain. That's Absolutely. Nancy, uh, thanks so much for your story. Let's go to Port Coquitlam and Colin. Hey, Colin, good morning. Hi there. Uh, 
two points. One, you're not wrong that uh, people who used to maybe use it, maybe when they're teenagers, they kind of checked out. I was in Maple Ridge in the 90s. It would take an hour and a half just from downtown Maple Ridge, which is a rural town anyways, just to get to Coquitlam Center way before SkyTrain even. So it was a three-hour thing to get down to Metro Town or downtown. But I, I do use transit these days, but it's more uh, for, say, uh, venues downtown or going to VGH and I time it in the middle of the day. I don't need it for commuting, fortunately, because i got my own vehicle. But, you know, when it comes to parking, it actually the math works out if you don't mind putting a price on your time because um, it can be a slower process. But in Port Coquitlam, you know, SkyTrain's right around the corner. So it's, like, like you say, it's like how central you are. If I was out in Abbotsford, it would be a tough sell, right? It would be a very tough sell, a very long ride. But even Abbotsford aside, coming into the downtown core, if you are in Langley, if you're in Maple Ridge, try being a student at BCIT. Yeah. Uh, really difficult to, uh, to get there in any timely fashion that makes yeah. any sort of sense. I agree. Yeah, I mean, the, the 99B... I've done that in the middle of the day, and that's already been stuffed. And this is only a couple of years ago to get from, uh, what was that, the SkyTrain down to the BGH. And uh, uh, <laughs> that's not in rush hour, clearly. So, yeah, more is better. Appreciate the call. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Colin. Colin in Port Coquitlam. Dennis, uh, do politicians really get it when it comes to areas further away from downtown Vancouver? A lot of them do. A lot of the ones that that have reached out to us do, and so I guess maybe that's a self-selecting group. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, as this region grows and as the valley grows, uh, we just need more. And I think we can, you know, we can share a vision for how much better this can all be. Like, what if we had a, a half hour, a bus every half hour from Abbotsford to downtown Vancouver? You know, that would cost next to nothing in terms of, you know, how much money the province is throwing around in a budget. It's almost a rounding error. But it takes and, somebody and to advocate just, for that. And it takes a politician yeah. to stand up and push and push, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's what we'll have to do. Okay. It's not just uh, the lower mainland. Let's uh, go to Brent in Victoria. Hey, Brent. Hey, uh, good morning, Bruce. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, so uh, like I'm in Victoria, and I've been advocating really hard on, I, I mean, I, I know you guys have talked about the electoral district in the lower mainland. Um, I used to live in the lower mainland, too, so I know like the uh, transit really, really well. I, I take transit all the time, even in Victoria, but trying to get to Duncan, oh my gosh, it's a uh, commuter service. So you, you can go one way, you can't get back the same day to go to Duncan, back to Victoria. You're stuck till the next day. But, I mean, so I want to see an express service, like, uh, you know, throughout the day, people should be able to go to and from, uh, you know, a community, like, back in, like, the lower mainland, same thing out in the valley, like, I'm glad that you guys are mentioning about Abbotsford, like, when I go from here out, it's like, it feels like you're going on an adventure, you're going on a holiday or something, when you go out to the valley, like, further out Abbotsford, Chilliwack. It sure is, and and I appreciate your call there, Brent, Uh, have to cut you for time, unfortunately, but it is a BC issue, and it's going to become more so as we start to live in different areas around the province, and those areas become more and more populated. My thanks to the callers, and also to Dennis Agar, Executive Director of Movement Metro Vancouver Transit Riders. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for being with us this morning. I'm Bruce Claggett and for Mike Smith. This is an interesting one, and it comes down to organ donations and a new challenge that is hitting us hard, especially in this province, and a possible connection between racial bias and cultural beliefs and organ donation. You see, Dr. Jagbear Gill, who's a kidney specialist at St. Paul's Hospital here in Vancouver, says South Asian Canadians have a 50 to 77 percent lower likelihood of getting a kidney transplant, and that's because of multiple reasons, including a lack of awareness about organ donation. They're also more hesitant than Caucasians to ask relatives and friends to donate a kidney. You can see some of the challenges there, and it's an interesting topic that is coming up as people wait for kidney donations in certain communities with maybe lower expectations of actually getting one. Dr. Gill is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for joining us, doctor. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I find this uh, a fascinating, if not somewhat frightening challenge, and one that you must see all the time now at St. Paul's. Absolutely. You know, I I think kidney disease um, is one of those conditions that is much more common than the average person realizes. And so, Sadly, this is a predicament that a lot of people are in where their kidneys are failing, a transplant is the best option for them, and there's a significant wait time to, you know, stay on a treatment like dialysis, which will keep you alive but not give you a great quality of life while you're waiting for someone to pass away and donate an organ. And our advice to people is, well, the first step is to see if there's somebody in your family, amongst your amongst your circle of friends who's alive and able to donate a kidney. Uh, And that prospect of having to process that and then actually go through the process of trying to bring this forward to your family and your friends and, and make the ask, so to speak, it's a tough one. Now that was traditionally, and I guess still is the ask, but is it a Caucasian centric ask or is it simply the right thing you should be doing to make that ask? Yeah, I think it's not, I'm not sure that it's a Caucasian-centric ask, but I think that the ask is its how well people are able to navigate the ask um, and, and the way we in the healthcare system support people to navigate that ask. Um, I think, you know, what, some of the work we found is that if you look at communities in different, ra- in different racial groups, and so in the study we did, we looked at the South Asian community. Um, we're also doing some work in Indigenous communities, and, we've done, and, our, and we have colleagues that have done some work in Ontario and the Black and African and Caribbean communities, and it's some very similar overlaps, right? So, so everyone, irrespective of race, doesn't love the idea of going out there and saying, I'm going to talk to my family and friends and say, does someone want to donate a kidney? It's awkward at, at, at the very least. 
Um, but we're seeing a much more exaggerated effect in certain groups. And so in the South Asian community, for instance, there's a very tight family network. So people may be comfortable within their core family circle, but when you go outside of that, there's a massive hesitation uh, and some guilt and some shame associated with even making the ask in and of itself. And so that's cutting off opportunities um, that may actually be there, but people aren't asking. Before we even get into the ask and knowing how to do it, uh, we should take a look at the other possibility of getting a kidney, and that is from a deceased donor. Right. Um, I, I take it, and I, I'm just guessing here, but that is not preferable in terms of your likelihood of success. It is, it is not because it, it takes a lot longer. So if you have a living donor, you can get a kidney transplant as soon as your living donor is approved to donate. Um, whereas if you don't, then you have to wait. And that wait on average in this province is about three years, um, which is much better than it used to be, I should mention, and, and better than many parts of the country, but it's still a long time. Um, and, and the outcomes after the transplant are better um, if you have a living donor transplant versus if you get one from the deceased donor wait list. Now, is that part of the messaging or how are you addressing this uh, challenge of Asian Canadians, uh, South Asian Canadians, having a 50 to 77% lower likelihood of getting a kidney? Yeah, I think I should clarify that that 70% likelihood is specifically for the living donor transplants. It's closer to about 40% if you're looking at all transplants. So it's, it is not great either way. Um, but I think the way we're addressing it is to really try to, you kind of have to get at the specifics of why people are, are not succeeding at getting that thing done, right? And, and in this case, I think it is quite complex. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of, on the one hand, people's family and cultural dynamics in terms of how they navigate healthcare and how they navigate issues around organ donation and, and those kinds of challenges. Um, but I think what, we look, what we're trying to focus on is what we can do to support people in the healthcare system. And so I think, you know, a lot of our educational materials, for instance, are very um, focused on a very Western-minded approach. Um, you know, we're, we're an individualistic society. We put it out there and we say, this is what you got to do. And I think we have to shift that a little bit when we're dealing with a diverse patient population to make sure that we're, we're being more culturally sensitive and we're actually providing resources that are beneficial, right, to people in different communities. How do we do that? How do we be more culturally sensitive in going about and making such a request? So there's a couple interesting pieces that came out in the work we did. One, one was actually representation. Um, and so we hear about this a lot in all walks of life, right? That, you, you know, whether it's gender, whether it's race, that when you have a more, when the people who are looking after you in healthcare look and have a similar background to the people you're looking after, if those demographics kind of are, are in line, then you get, a, um, you get more culturally sensitive care. So that did come out uh, that that's one thing that, that's beneficial. Um, the other thing we can do, I think, is to use tools that are really proven to be beneficial. So storytelling, getting previous patients, getting members of those communities to be very vocal about their experience with organ donation, for instance. I think those have been quite successful, and, and those are the areas we're focusing in on. 
Are there any lessons to be learned from other places around the world that have significant South Asian populations outside of uh, uh, original nations like India, but uh, maybe even in the UK? Is there anything to be learned or do they have the same problem? I think they have the same problem to much of the, you know, um, in in terms of the the access issue. Um, And I think we're actually working with them and, and understanding some of the solutions they've They've, they've added and, I, and it's much the same that we found. It really is kind of making sure that we're, you know, giving educational materials that are linguistically appropriate. So even the basics of making sure that we have appropriate translations that aren't just rote translations, but are actually getting the message across appropriately. Very simple stuff, actually, when you think about it. Uh, to more complex interventions of saying, okay, you have a peer support network of patients from that community who can speak more freely about what what the experience is like and and get people more comfortable with the idea. Okay, we're talking with Dr. Jagbert Gill, who is a kidney specialist at St. Paul's Hospital here in Vancouver. Uh, Doctor, when we start to take a look at where this is going and look for some possible solutions to this, I know there are a couple programs underway, focus groups. What are we doing and what needs to be done? So I think I'll start with what we're doing. What we're doing right now is a couple things. Um, on the one hand, we are looking at our our way of supporting patients. And so we're doing a project right now where we're doing creating digital stories that will work as essentially a virtual patient navigator to help patients go through. And we're making sure those are including stories from diverse patient populations uh, and in different languages so that it's super accessible for patients. And we're hoping that's going to be important. Obviously, we're taking some of these findings that we're discussing today and reviewing them within our healthcare teams, within our uh, province, so that anyone who's involved in the care of these individuals um, is is aware of these issues and, and how we can kind of, that, that there's a need to work towards it. I think where we need to head is actually have more community engagement, more community awareness. So we've been doing some work with um, the Kidney Foundation of Canada, which is which is an important nonprofit organization in the space of kidney disease, to do specific events to highlight kidney disease and organ donation in the South Asian community, working with local media uh, within the South Asian community to say, how do we highlight this issue? How do we celebrate organ donation? How do we raise awareness on those issues? And those are, are starting to come together now. And and I'm, and I'm quite heartened by the fact that there's a great deal of interest in the community um, and a lot of uh, interest to try to work with us to, to really spread that message and to get that awareness out there. The groups that have been involved in encouraging organ donation in the past, how have they uh, received this work that you've done and these stats that you have and research that you have? Are they willing to take a look at it and build it into their existing programs? So far, the, 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 the response has been very positive. Um, I think people are very anxious to do something tangible with this information. Um, there's a long history in healthcare of reporting on uh, inequities in, in healthcare, uh, and but there's often not the next step, which is what do we do about it? And I think there's a really big appetite now to try to do something tangible to really look at what we can actually do to change things from our end. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm to do that now. And you've got the support of Health Canada. In fact, they're funding uh, part of this, aren't they? Yeah, Health Canada has been very supportive of this work. They funded this work in a series of other projects that have looked at um, I- increasing 
uh, organ donation and transplantation and addressing the issues across the country. You know, when this comes up as a topic, it must be difficult at times because there is a racial component. And when you start to talk about that as uh, as a reality, do you find some people kind of not wanting to address that there are populations more susceptible to things like diabetes? Yeah, I think that's an important consideration. You know, I anytime we talk about race and we talk about culture and we're talking about access to something as basic as healthcare, it's uncomfortable. Um, and and we need to kind of get past that discomfort because I think avoiding it is the wrong thing to do. We need to address these issues head on. And I, I do feel, at least in my experience, I've found that uh, whether I'm speaking with hospital programs, whether I'm speaking with provincial organizations uh, like BC Transplant, there is, um, you know, I think much more openness to have these discussions and to move forward. And importantly, within communities, right, within actual, you know, the general public is more open to saying, OK, this is the issue. How do we actually move forward and, and deal with this? So I think everything's on the table. And I think looking at, um, you know, communities where diseases like diabetes are more common is is key. Prevention is key. Um, and, you know, we need to do all these things. So my sense is, is that actually over time, there's a, there's a greater uh, enthusiasm to tackle these issues uh, and on all those fronts. Doctor, if people want more information, is there a website they can go to to find out what we're talking about? For sure. There's, um, in terms of general information on uh, organ donation and transplantation, I direct people to the BC Transplant website. I don't have the website handy on me right now, but if you Google BC Transplant, uh, you'll get there pretty easily. Um, and that's a good, good starting point to go through all that information. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. An interesting topic and best to you as we look for solutions to this. Great. Thanks to you for raising awareness on this issue. I appreciate it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. I don't know if you've ever been called for jury duty. My name has come up three times and I served once and I remember the pay back then was certainly not great. Luckily, I was uh, an employee at the time and my employer decided to uh, pay the balance of what I would usually make as an employee. That is not the case for everyone. And oh, by the way, that pay that you get is abysmal. It's very low. So it comes down to the question in your civic duty, in something that you should be doing with pride and representing a big portion of what happens in our society's responsibility clause, how is BC's low pay for jurors preventing some of the accused from being tried by their peers? It's a good question. A question that comes in light of the fact that some of the pay can be as low as about 20 bucks and as high as about 100 bucks. And that 100 bucks is for those who are getting a little bit of extra pay for things like 
parking and for childcare, things like that. Yes, you do get free dinners if I remember right, but basically the pay is really low. And obviously there are issues with that. And it leads to the question of, can everyone afford to actually sit on a jury? And what does that mean when the answer is no? Well, Werner Antweiler is an associate prof and chair of strategy and business economics at UBC. Good morning, Werner. Nice to have you with us. Good morning. You know, I guess the obvious question, can everyone afford to be on a jury or is that... uh, the purview of those uh, that can? Yeah, the simple answer is no. Uh, many people are not able to afford to sit on a jury because the pay is so low that uh, they cannot possibly make a living while they're away. And sometimes jury duty isn't just for a day or two. Uh, some trials can last months, and that actually poses significant hardship to many people. Uh, obviously, the pay that is being offered, which is as low as $20 for the first 10 days, then it goes up a little bit to $60 a day for the 11th to the 49th day, and then it goes to $100 a day for everything uh, after 50 days. That's still not enough for many people uh, to uh, to make up for their lost wages. And uh, that is the case uh, when they go on jury duty. Uh, the employers are uh, only required to uh, let these employees go on unpaid leave, but it doesn't mean that they continue receiving wages while they're away. Yeah, some employers are decent enough, and I was lucky uh, my employer actually did match my pay. That was just something that happened to be in the agreement that I had. Um, But that's not always the case, and I don't even know if that's usually the case. That's just for employees and employers. Then there are the self-employed people, people that have to make money every single day and go out and do it and hustle. they really lose all those wages and potentially customers, don't they? Yes, that's exactly right. So anyone who's running a small business just cannot afford to be absent from work because it would really mean uh, a detrimental outcome to the business itself uh, and potentially also employees at that business. So for for uh, for these cases, there are exemptions. And um, so one can actually claim exemptions uh, for um, serving as a juror if it causes serious hardship or the loss uh, to the potential juror or others. So that is a clause that will allow some people uh, to get off jury duty if they can demonstrate that it would uh, pose significant hardship. And the result then is that these people won't serve on a jury. And that means it uh, reduces the pool of eligible jurors uh, to those who can really afford to sit on the jury. Well, there's the catch. And we'll get to those that end up on the jury in a second. But even before that, somebody's got to make the ultimate decision on who gets to have a hardship and who doesn't have a hardship, how much of a hardship it is. Does that fall to a judge or is it the sheriffs uh, that decide that? Yeah, that's actually the sheriff. Uh, So the summons is actually issued by the sheriff and people are then required to respond to the summons. And then uh, it goes back to the sheriff uh, who then decides what is and uh, does not amount to hardship. Uh, usually, um, the uh, uh, when when a, a jury pool is being selected, a lot more invitations go out than are needed for jurors, and uh, the the sheriff's office does know that a lot of people will not be able to to sit on the jury, uh, and as a result, um, uh, they're relatively lenient from as far as I understand. Uh, when people actually can demonstrate hardship, uh, they will get off jury duty. Okay, so now we can start to see how a jury by composition is a little bit skewed. 
or can potentially be skewed. Missing in representation, I would guess, would be people who are self-employed, people who are perhaps more inclined to have jobs that uh, are on the lower ends of income. Am I right, or is there something I'm missing in that? Yeah, um, this is unfortunately not well studied because the information about the JIRS is uh, confidential. So there is no no database that actually allows researchers to really rigorously look at um, um, now who is and who is not selected uh, for jury duty at the end. Uh, and, and that means that we don't know, but we, we see uh, from who's sitting on the jury uh, from uh, anecdotal uh, evidence um, and that it seems to be somewhat biased and it looks like uh, people who are who tend to be more affluent have more secure jobs where employers actually offers them the uh, continuation of wages and but that is again not the case for everyone so every employee who doesn't offer that basically then constitutes a hardship for somebody sitting on a jury for an extended period uh, so that is basically then encouraging people to either ignore the summons or or ask for an accommodation um, that um, uh, along the lines of hardship or, or some of the other reasons that are on the list that uh, constitutes exemptions. I know of one case, and it comes from my memory of being in a court and having somebody that was being screened for jury duty, and her claim was that uh, she was responsible for childcare, had nothing to do with wages, but if she was called into jury duty, there would be other people in her life that depend upon her to provide childcare that would not be able to go to work. That's something that you could see doesn't really fall into any lines. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, never even thought about that. Are you coming across this as a bit of an issue? Yes. Uh, so what constitutes hardship actually covers a lot of different things. And uh, that is not only the loss of income, but also many people are caregivers for others. And so if you're a caregiver for a child or an uh, elderly person, uh, and then uh, that uh, that labor suddenly disappears uh, because it's on jury duty. And that really uh, creates then another financial burden because you have to find a higher replacement potentially. So all of this uh, actually uh, means that uh, when it comes to uh, selecting uh, juries, uh, we need to actually make uh, concessions to a lot of these cases where people can demonstrate uh, significant problems uh, or take even high paid jobs uh, like a medical doctor, a surgeon. Now, if you're taking a surgeon out of the hospital, that creates a significant uh, problem uh, because we can't easily replace these uh, um, uh, people who actually uh, do jobs that uh, require very high qualifications and um, where the absence actually would create hardship. Uh, surgery is not performed. Um, and uh, that, uh, that is something where um, uh, we, we need to see that uh, the, the jury selection here uh, creates a number of very important biases that are not easily uh, corrected. You can see all the potential issues there when you take some people out and all, also the complication when you decide somebody is more important in their job than somebody else. Uh, not an enviable position to be in to make those type of calls. But what are the solutions here? What steps can policymakers, government do or take at this point? Yes, a very minimum is something that has been called for a long time, which is increasing the pay for, jur uh, for jurors. 
uh, at $20 a day, that is just not a realistic amount of compensation. So um, the government needs to determine what is fair compensation here. Uh, at the very least, um, if uh, sometimes, yeah, it's the employers who continue paying uh, their the salary, but we cannot expect employers in all cases to do that. Uh, so this is something that um, uh, there is a job performed. It's a civic duty, but also one uh, that um, in, incurs cost um, that basically means lost income from wages. That needs to be fully compensated. Uh, and then we, we see that a jury duty is essentially on equal footing to uh, your other type of continuation of uh, work duties. Uh, so that is a minimum uh, that should be contemplated. Um, uh, just increasing it to $100 throughout or $120 uh, per day, it's probably not going to be enough uh, to compensate most people who earn a lot more uh, during the day than $120. So uh, fair compensation is uh, what I would call for as the, the bare minimum, but that is not the only solution. Well, baby steps. And uh, by the way, this is one of the reasons you have things like provincial budgets and budget days, but who knows that that's even a priority. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.